We are uh, in a series of messages that uh, I don't need to tell you um, how excited I am. I talk fast because I'm engaged deeply, as many of you are, in a, a series of studies that uh, we've titled uh, In Step with the Spirit. Your Bible knows it as the Book of Acts or Acts of the Apostles, and um, we're going to be there again this morning. But if you were to zoom out, and look at the totality of 28 chapters, you would probably conclude, as I have, that this is really a description, not only of the apostles and the first church, as we've come to call it. Uh, by the way, i got to give a shout-out to Doug Wynn. You're real close. You're right here at home, and we love you, bro brother, and miss you. Um, so uh, this, this uh, back to my point, this zoomed-out look at Acts you come away with a sense that this is truly about the Holy Spirit coming as promised in Acts 2, and then it changed not a few things, not most things. It changed everything to have the Holy Spirit present and powerful and moving mightily in that first church. And I, let me just, this is a season spoiler, but at the end of this series, my hope is that we will be convinced that we are the Acts 29 church, because there is no 29th chapter, just to let, let you know about that. We are the 29th chapter. Y'all, you got it? We are. That means we need the same Holy Spirit to pull off the same results until finally we hear a trumpet sound, and the, the clouds part, and our loved ones that have gone before us and are with Jesus now will return along with Jesus, grab God's people, and I hope you're one of them, and head home. Amen? Amen. That's what I believe with all my heart. I really do. Um, so I want to take you from that uh, sort of amen moment quickly to the, one of the saddest moments for the first church that we talked about when it came up. Uh, not many weeks ago. It's uh, when one of their own, uh, a highly esteemed uh, leader, uh, respected to the core, this leader's name was Stephen. And, um, and he was cut down in his prime uh, by a raging mob of misguided religious zealots known as, you ready for it? The Sanhedrin. They were the spiritual leaders, presumed to be, anyway, of the day. They were leadership run amok. They were leadership that said, I'm glad I got this spot, because you'll listen to me and shut up. I get to call the shots. You hearing the word control and power? Is that the style Jesus taught? No. Yeah, you, the greatest among you will be, yeah, servant of all. Man, I wish we had an example of that. Oh, that's right. That's how you did it, Jesus. <laughs> so somehow they missed that, and in the process, they took down uh, uh, what I would call an early church, first church giant, Stephen. Uh and on that day when that happened, it's at the end of chapter 7, there was one person watching it go down. And believe it or not, as they stoned Stephen to death, 
he had a smile on his face. Even if you weren't in favor of something that cruel and sadistic, to have a smile on your face takes it to another level, does it not? It's like, really? You find pleasure in what's unfolding in front of our eyes? And indeed he did. So inspired was this one smiling that day that uh, that very day he left when the crowd thinned out and finally went away on his own search and destroy mission. And his name, if you don't know already, is Saul. Um, Somebody's got music going or a crazy phone having fun and you might want to share it with the rest or shut it off. But (laughs) okay. So after meeting Jesus on a journey to Damascus, this one that once smiled at the sick sight of somebody being stoned to death, Um, he's heading to Damascus on that, I called it search and destroy mission. And as he approached Damascus, Jesus Christ approached him. Got in his way. And, um, And it all changed for him. He met Jesus on the road to Damascus with a purpose to hunt down and kill Christians, and he fled hostilities um, that were soon to be turned against him. Yes, you, you heard me right. Saul, who hunted Christians, would become a hunted man himself. By people that didn't buy it, they weren't persuaded, they were not convinced he was changed, and they waited for their chance to off him. Now, um, let me just say in respect, if not understanding of those people that wanted to do away with him, if you had been through the kind of experience the church was going through, uh, you would probably as well be wary of this person who was a terrorist turned evangelist. Uh, Something in me doesn't want to buy that. How about you? You quick to just believe, oh, okay, you're different, so we'll forget all that, and I don't think so. Maybe a few do. Um, So people were wary, and to say that, that that would be at least an understatement, if not um, a a distortion. Uh, There, uh, where Saul was chased, really told to go, in Tarsus, um, he... He was off the radar, and he remained out of sight, probably not out of mind, but out of sight for sure, for some 10 years. And and that doesn't mean he was in timeout, on restrictions. It meant something was going on behind the scenes. That meant that God was working on him busily, to pull off a redo of this guy that had quite a rap sheet. And um, during this season of obscurity, God was, in fact, doing deep things in Saul. Uh, Swindoll writes this. 
God was honing his theology, whittling at his character, and rearranging his priorities during those years. He was also teaching him techniques of what it means to walk in the Spirit, which is what this book is about, and no longer walk according to the flesh, which was something he was rather skilled at, and anybody is that hasn't met Jesus. So uh, let me just stop myself. We're going to get into the text in just a moment, but God still does that. What I've just described in Saul, meeting Jesus, um, and going away for a decade, uh, God does that. Maybe not the same length of time, but maybe I'm talking about you right now. You feel you're kind of in that season. Um, you can relate to that. Uh, let me give you a sense of how it might feel for, for Saul and maybe you. You feel sidelined. You feel sort of put on a shelf. Uh, you're told to stand down, and you know there's things going on, things that you have a new heart to be part of, but you're, you're told, no, it's not time yet. Ever felt that way? Ever felt pulled from the action? Okay? I don't mean a childhood memory when you, you know, misbehaved. But I'm talking about in life, maybe now. You're, you're, you're kind of nursing this possibility that life, you, it could pass you by. You may miss something. It's like, put me in, coach. What did I do wrong? That kind of thing. You know, silence may be golden, right? But not when you want to be in the game. Uh, I'll, I'll confess, I was a high school baseball star. <laughs> okay. I, was, I played left field in high school, okay? We'll, we'll debate the star part. Um, how many of you know baseball well enough to know that the batter at the plate doesn't just do what he wants? Right? There's uh, Bob George. Who, who gives him direction? The manager. Where's the manager? And well, who else gives direction? <laughs> Somebody's going to say Jesus. I know, I know, I get it, okay. All right? The third base coach, he looks, steps back, he whacks his feet because it looks cool, and, and then he looks over, and there's all kinds of, you know, signals. You know, that whole deal. None of it matters except one prearranged signal. And in my case, I stood at the plate, and I was ready to go for the fence because we needed some, some runs, and I had some, some obvious strength. And uh, so anyway, I'm standing there, and I get a signal from my coach that was different than I, than I practiced at the plate. And I stood there and waited for the pitch, and I swung for Saigon. I mean, I was going to kill it, and I missed. And my coach put his hand up to get a timeout in baseball and came and he goes, he's signaling to me to walk over. And he's like, his head's down. Do you know when the kind when both the veins are popping out? Yeah. He comes up to me and he goes, McCracken! I'm going to have a stroke if I do that again. But, um, and he's McCracken! He's trying to, and his lips bleeding because he's, he's biting his lip. And he's going, did you not see the signal? And, and I'm, I'm like, oh, coach, come on. Can it, can it just be about the two of us? The whole world's watching, you know. And 
And the coach, um, as soon as I was done with my at-bat, I was on the bench. And I got to watch until I learned my lesson. I got to watch and be tortured by, let's just say, less talented athletes. I think that's Saul. Maybe not the whole 10 years. I'll bet there was enough in his mind and heart that says, put me in, coach. Put me in. And eventually, he yielded and said, not my will, but thine be done. And the rest of Acts is a story of how, well, God put him in. Don't forget that. There's a couple of sayings, uh, frequently s- citing a principle that's, that says basically, God does not call the qualified. He qualifies the called. Are you going to hear his voice? You don't have to show up with skill. Don't tell me, well, I'm not, it's, I haven't gone to seminary. Forget that. That may have a part in your life in the future, but for now... What about the basic question? Are, are, are you ready to say, Lord, I'll, I'll do whatever you want. Let me know. I know you live in America. What if he told you I want you to go for a time to some other place, some other country with the gospel? Could be. Um, God does not call the qualified. He qualifies the called. He, he gets them ready. That's what happened with Saul. He was called, but he needed to be qualified. Here's another one that's a little closer to home and a little closer to my story. A.W. Tozer said in a kind of a resolute way, it is doubtful that God can use a man or woman greatly until he's hurt them deeply. For you who are going, oh, I don't like the thought of God hurting you. That's, don't forget that. Forget that. Until God does whatever it takes, for you to get over you. Usually that involves some kind of hurt. You with me? Tozer's a smart guy. So for Saul, 10 years was a long time. And uh, while some of that time was shrouded, as I've said, in obscurity, most of it actually is only known by the new look in Saul. And that, that starts to flow in the weeks to come. Today's study is going to shine on God's call-up of this new Saul. It's still his name, but in just two chapters, he's going to get a new name, and he's, he's, going, to, he's going to be ready to live out a new vision God has for his life. Amen? That's a cool place, even if you're right now in timeout. All right? So as Saul disappeared from the scene... Um, now sequestered in a city that he was familiar with, his home city of Tarsus of Cilicia, Luke leaves us with an impressive picture of a powerful pivot. I want you to look in chapter 9 of Acts, just quickly to read this verse with me. There's this this powerful pivot um, of the first church. Uh, When the church, this is after Paul, verse 30. um, Well, let's back up, 29. Uh, Paul, this new convert to Christ, when, when he saw the light, if you will, and that was true, uh, then he went to the believers um, 
and he sh started sharing about Jesus, and quickly they wanted to get rid of him, verse 29. Verse 30, when the believers learned of this, that Saul was going to go down, um, they took action, and they took him down to Caesarea, the, the port city, and sent him off to Tarsus. And then look at verse 31. I love verse 31 because it, it's a picture of the first church, this powerful pivot. They went from what you might imagine hiding in, in, in like a bunker mentality because there's bad guys on the loose. This, this spirit changed rather quickly, and, and it's a picture in verse 31. When the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria from that time on enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged I love it. By the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. Isn't that a great picture? Imagine that. Imagine people talking about Grace Point. I, and this is a picture, not of the first church, but of Grace Point. Don't you want to belong to such a place? Uh, I, I know I do. And, and I'm, I'm really, we're becoming that church again. You know that? We've been that church. We've gone through some rough patches like any church. The challenges have been real. The headwinds have been strong. But we're, we're moving forward. We're becoming better. We are, uh, some of these things are true here. We're, we're, we're experiencing peace. We're being strengthened. We live in the fear of the Lord. We are encouraged by God through his Holy Spirit. And we are definitely increasing in numbers. Amen? And can I just encourage us? Let's just keep taking hold of the Holy Spirit's hand as he leads us forward. That's what this is about. That said, uh, let's flip quickly to um, chapter 11, which is where we left off last time. Pick up uh, on the progress of this increasingly exciting church, the first church. And they're scattered for obvious reasons and those that I've kind of tried to capture quickly here today. But they're scattered in lots of different places. Um, and they're scattered to implement, we're going to read it now, the third part of Jesus' words that they are to take the gospel when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. This is Acts 1.8. And they're to take it to Jerusalem, where they were spoken, to Judea, to Samaria. And then he says, and to the ends of the earth, which is where my title comes from this morning. Now let's read it together. Verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia. I'm pointing north because that's where it was, Cyprus and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Next verse. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch of Syria. There's two Antiochs. This is the eastern Antioch. They went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also. So Jews and Greeks also telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. In verse 21, I love it. The Lord's hand was with them. That's why I said, let's hold on to the Holy Spirit's hand. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Incredible stuff. Um, 
This illustrates what we just read, the principle, bloom where you're planted. You heard that principle? Bloom where you're planted. Let's not forget these people fled for their lives. That's a time of panic. And you hide when those moments happen. And you hope for a reprieve somewhere along the way. That's just human instinct. But Luke reports that as far as Phoenicia, which is, if you're like, where's Phoenicia? Think present-day Lebanon. Present-day Lebanon, north of Israel, on the coast. It hugs the Mediterranean. It's a thin little country and a long one. So we're told that in Phoenicia, it was known in that day, Cyprus, which is an island off the Mediterranean, off the coast, uh, kind of west and north of uh, Haifa, modern-day Haifa. It's in Syria, um, and it was this Cyprus was also the home to somebody that shows up today in our study, Barnabas. That's where he comes from. And then he adds a third place that they are also from Antioch. Do you see that? They came, uh, went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks there. Uh, Antioch's a big deal. 300 miles north of Jerusalem, sort of straight up and tilt just slightly west. That's Antioch. 300 miles north of Jerusalem. And in the ancient world, one of three, the three largest cities in the Roman Empire. It's the difference between taking the gospel to Burns, Oregon, and taking it to Seattle. Not that one city's better than the other. But one city's small, and you can reach it all in about a day. The other city is massive and, and cosmopolitan. There's planes taken off and trains and boats and everything else, cars. And, and you can see how th- people come and go. Uh, think strategic, and you've got sort of the idea going on. So um, as a result, they experience verse 21. Look at it again incredible favor from God, and great fruit. That's what I call the Holy Spirit telling us that great numbers of people believed and turned to Jesus. That means they did an about-face. They didn't just get a little religion. They believed in Jesus, the one who came and died and was buried and rose again on the third day and is coming again for his people. They stopped in their tracks and said, that makes sense. i got to have a part in that. And the answer is, yes, you do. You, and, and the offer is yours. Take part in that. Believe in him. Repent of your sin. And in that moment, wow, no surprise at all, right? Great numbers of people believed and turned to the Lord. So um, that's a lesson for us, all of us. We too find ourselves from time to time, I think, in tough spots. Um, And we're away from home, and we're away from uh, the family and friends, and just all things familiar. Um, Raise your hand if you've been there or you know somebody that has. Uh, You've dropped a child off at school, Um, whatever, whatever the case. So you're in that unfamiliar place, and you have a choice if you're that student or if you're in a, new to an area. I spoke with some of you here this morning that came from the state south of southern Oregon, where I came from, or uh, California. And, uh, yeah, they came up here, and they're, 
they're among us. Uh, I am too. I've lasted 30 years. They're going to be here that long too. So anyway, the point is, uh, they're in an unfamiliar place. Heard about this place, but they have a choice. Anybody in this spot does. These Christians did. They're in Antioch, and they're in, man, they were running for their lives, all that stuff. And they can be sullen, and they can pull back. That, that's easy to do. You can be that person that gets sad. I don't like it here. It's unfamiliar. I'm just going to hide out and be to myself. Or you can say, like you're living, wherever you are, God puts you there. Now, and he puts you there for this reason. Bloom where you've been planted. That's exactly what these people were doing. They're like, I don't know, but I don't know anybody here. But I want to see them all in heaven, so let's get busy. Is that cool? It's, it's good. So these scattered saints did, uh, they did that, and in short order, um, they have all kinds of brand new believing neighbors and friends. I have people like that in my neighborhood. This is a street that had people that had been there for decades, and it's changing. And my new neighbors are really cool, some of them. Uh, <laughs> some, some have loud dogs, uh, but um, we're going to win them. So meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, the news that Peter had uh, shared with the Gentiles um, was, was amazing, and it was actually being accepted um, and had been embraced by the church back in Jerusalem which explains their positive response to this, let's call it an evangelistic explosion. So Peter's talking, and you can go to past sermons and hear this and, and kind of live it in real time. He's telling about, you know what, I was in Caesarea, and I shared the gospel with a non-Jew of all things, and he and his family and a whole bunch of friends all accepted Jesus, and their lives were changed, and guess what? To confirm it all, the Holy Spirit fell on them. And there was in the moment a, oh, they aren't Jews. They're Gentiles. And he goes, yeah. And they went, well, well, who are we to get in the way of that? That was Peter's words recently in a message. So that's going on there. And it was embra embraced. And, and then this report of this evangelistic explosion up north in Antioch, Syria, um, is described in more detail, verse 22. Now, uh, news of this reached the church in Jerusalem, that these people had gone to these various places with the gospel, Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Syriac, and, uh, uh, um, and Antioch of Syria. News of that reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived, he saw what the grace of God had done. I'm reading from verse 23. He was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all of their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Um, then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for, will you circle that, folks? We haven't heard from Saul in a while, like 10 years. He went to Tarsus to look for Saul. 
When he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians the first time, right then and there in Antioch. Whoa. What a great picture of how to help new believers grow. I'm going to stop right now and ask you an honest question. You don't have to raise your hand because I don't want pressure on this question. How many of you know a brand new Christian? I want you to think about it. Get, get their face, get their name in mind. If it helps you, write it down on a piece of paper on your note page. Brand new believer. They're a rookie. They're a newbie. They don't know much, but they're new, and you know them. Okay? Now, we're given instruction here on how to help new believers grow. Two principles. We just read them. Let's understand them deeply. The first is this. Build up others with encouraging words. Look at verse 23 again. That's why Barnabas is an important feature here. When Barnabas arrived, he saw what the grace of God had done. They were born again. And he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all of their hearts, building up others with encouraging words. Here, here's something I found to be a problem in my own life. Um, I become impatient with a new believer, and I want them to act like a seasoned old-timer. I want, I want them to be sin-free in 30 days or your money back, you know, right? I, I don't know about you, but I, I, there is that sense in me. And with it comes a little bit of a, a corrective spirit. I'm like, hey, you met Jesus last week. Step up. Get it together. You know, what's your problem? I don't say it like that, but I'm, I'm, some of my tone can at times be a little uh, too corrective and sometimes a little too loaded with uh, advice. Well, here, let me tell you, here, and I give them a dissertation on how to stop smoking. You know, I didn't have a big habit smoking. So um, let it go. Who cares? For now, Jesus will help him with that later. Let's take baby steps. You know what I'm talking about? And so it's possible that your counsel could be counterproductive. It could be critical, and it could be too weighted with warnings. Most of us know what that's like. We've Most of us been on the receiving end of that. We're like, man, I just met Jesus, and boy, apparently they're trying to get me ready for heaven this week, you know? <laughs> You know what I mean? So, um, and they're new Christians. Um, and I, I mean well, and I know if you're one of those that does that, you, you mean well, but it has the effect of laying a heavy load of feel on these baby Christians, um, burdened with what they should do and what they shouldn't do. Um, can I remind you of something? 100% of every Christian became a Christian not by getting good. 
it's so in my face right now. I'm thinking, no, how did I become a Christian? I met Jesus Christ. I turned my heart over to him. I fell on my knees before him. I, when I turned to Jesus, he won my heart, and over time, he will change the habits of my heart. Amen? Think of whatever sin you cannot imagine a person having when they get to heaven. Think of it. You don't have to call it out. I have my list. You realize it's possible that a brand new Christian will struggle to fight that sin and overcome it and conquer it and fail again and step up and be helped up again and fall again and they will maybe get to heaven smelling like smoke. I don't mean cigarette smoke. That's not going to keep you out of heaven. Uh, smoke lights, okay? It's better for you anyway. But No, it's not. It's really not. But anyway, um, what I'm saying is this, this is a journey. When you meet Jesus, he doesn't complete the job that day or anytime soon. I, I'm counting on seeing people in heaven that have soiled lives on earth. Does it mean Jesus goes, oh, I guess we'll make an exception? No. 100% of everyone that gets to heaven has met Jesus Christ, has said, Jesus, come into my life. Holy Spirit, fill me. I repent of my sin and make me brand new. If anyone is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says what? They are a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, everything's new. Does that mean all their sin's gone? Well, yes and no. It means it's the etch-a-sketch effect. You know how I talk about that? It's over. You're cleansed. Sin's gone. But by golly, the next day they sinned again. Now what? Oh, I know. Get born again again. No. You're born again once. You have eternal life, a promise. Now let's let him, because he won your heart, kind of roll up the Jesus sleeves, and go to work under the hood of your life. Amen? Amen. Tell people that. Um, remember also that heaven, I just love, I try to stop sometimes when I'm reading the Bible and listen. And I read Luke 15 again. And it, and it says a couple of times there, there's this great party in heaven. I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel left out if there's a lot of laughter and fun going on in the neighbor's yard. You know, last night there was 50 people in my neighbor, new neighbor's yard celebrating their daughter's uh, wedding. And I'm like, man, I'm not dressed for the occasion, but sounds like a cool gathering, right? You know, great, great new people. Um, so, so here's the deal. Um, heaven has these parties. Did you know that? Luke 15 tells you twice. Story of the prodigal son. Story of the lost coin, the lost sheep. And then it says this. I tell you, verse 7 of Luke 15, 
that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people. Heaven loves a turnaround story. I want to be a part of those turnaround stories. I really do. I hope you do. Um, So no wonder that church sends someone like Barnabas, a.k.a. Son of Encouragement. Isn't that his name? That's what we've talked about before when we met him, uh, chapter 4, verse 36. And And they send him with the purpose of looking after and encouraging these people to stay close to Jesus. That's why these words are so cool. What's Barnabas' purpose and mission? To say to a brand new Christian, stay close to Jesus, the one who won your heart. That's good. Barnabas used many tools to encourage these baby believers. Um, So do you you see the word again? Just so you're clear on this, uh, the word in verse 23, he encouraged them all. The word encourage is an interesting word. What What does it mean to encourage? The word encourage means to stand alongside uh, someone with courage, with counsel, comma, with comfort, which is really standing close to them, and with hope. Would you write those four things down? Because they're in the Bible. To encourage someone is to come alongside. Don't shout it. Put your arm around it. You know, get close to them and say, hey, let me give you some Well, let's start with courage because this is a hard time. People are giving you a rough time for becoming a Christian. You're a new Christian. So give them courage. Give give them counsel. What do I do here? I don't know what to do. Give them comfort because it will be difficult. And then give them hope because it will get better. That's what the Bible describes. In fact, it was the word... The Apostle John used four times in his gospel and once in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, the epistle he wrote, one of three, to describe, you ready for this? The work of the Holy Spirit. That's right. The Holy Spirit's work is to do what Barnabas is doing here, to encourage. Put it together, and Barnabas, inspired by the Holy Spirit, was spending time with these baby believers for the purpose, to read it again, to keep their hearts true to the Lord. Man, I know a ton of you are good at that. Get gooder. Do it, do it, do it, do it. Say, it's okay, you're going to make it. I know you stubbed your toe. I know you stumbled badly. It's all right. That's hope. You're going to get there. The Holy Spirit will see to it. Um, so, if, you, if you're not sure you play that role in somebody's life, try. Just give it a go. See what happens. To help them not lose heart or fall away is a precious assignment. really is. Um, and it's needed. But I don't want you to miss the, um, that we're told twice that this crowd was big. The group of people in these locations 
was sizable, significant. We're told in verse 21 and 24 that the numbers of new Christians was huge. Luke, Luke makes a point of that, which in, explains the second strategy for helping these newbies in their spiritual uh, journey, to gain their spiritual footing. Look at verse 25 again. Paul or uh, Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. That just comes out of nowhere, doesn't it? Actually, there's something behind it. When he found him, he brought him to Antioch, and, and he did so so that for a whole year, notice this tag team, Barnabas and Saul, meet with the church and taught great numbers of people. So um, train up others in God's truth is the second principle. And it's clear that Barnabas was, we've, we've spent time on that, an encourager, but it's equally clear that though Barnabas was a capable teacher, he's one of the tag team that did it, he also was wise enough and humble enough to go, hold on, I'm in over my head. There's too much here. Too many people for me to properly care for and mature in the faith. So he reaches out to someone in his memory, that he had confidence in to help uh, teach uh, new believers to explain, because he knew this stuff inside and out. So who did he find? No surprise here. He taps Saul. And Saul is not too far away, actually 125 miles to the west. And he goes to Tarsus, and together they teach great gatherings of baby believers don't miss it for a full year. Full year. Um, here's the deal. I want to land on this. We're not told how, what they taught. We're simply, I wish there was a curriculum. I would buy it and share it with everybody. We're just not told what they taught them. We're told how long it took. But this last scene I want to read in just four verses um, actually gives us some insight into how their lives were being transformed. You, don't, don't lose me now. If you're a new Christian and you do what we're about to read in these last four verses, something happened inside you to make you even aware, much less responsive to that need. Verse 27. During this time, this is after they've, they've been teaching for a year. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem that is, went north. They came down the hill from Jerusalem up north to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would be spread over the entire Roman world. That means most of America would go hungry. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea, that's a long way away. They, this they did, sending their gifts to the elders in Jerusalem by Barnabas and Saul. People, their lives were being changed. If you're all in just for yourself, you don't, you don't naturally learn, you know what, it's not about me, it's about others. And it's about what God wants to do through me. You don't learn that overnight. That's why I'm saying we don't know what they taught for a year, but we know from the evidence in the lives of the people that they were 
being transformed to actually hear of a distant need. Are you thinking Ukraine right now? We are lots of thousands of miles away from them, and you guys are pouring out the money to help people that are destitute in Ukraine and elsewhere in our world. That's what was going on here. They were becoming more like their new master in a major way. I say a major way because for most people, the last thing to get baptized is their wallet. Right? Oh, yeah, I'm all in for Jesus. What, what are they going to do? They're going to pass the offering plate? What, what? What's that about? It takes a higher level of transformation to say, you know what? You don't own it. And the church don't own it. Jesus owns it all. And he, he has a legitimate claim to all of it. He asks for some of it. They are learning this. I want you to follow this thread quickly and we'll be done. They, they Remember Jesus' words way back in Luke. Listen to these words. Chapter 6, verse 40. He says these to his newly recruited disciples. There's 12 of them. He said, the student is not above his teacher. But everyone who's fully, fully trained will be like their teacher. Okay? Would you circle that in your mind as one point? Okay? And then add to that, remember John's words um, when defining the nature of love? He's sitting around telling people this is what love is. 1 John 3, verses 16 to 18. This is the second point. He says, this is how we know what love is. That Jesus Christ laid down his life for his friends. If anyone sees a brother or sister in need, they're living in Antioch, Syria, and they hear this distant need. If anyone here sees their brother or sister in need, and they have the possessions and the means to help, and they fold their arms and say, nope, and stay out of my pocket or purse. John concludes, how then does the love of God abide in people like that? And he concludes verse 18, 1 John 3, 18. Little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, in what we say and, and talk, but in deed and in truth. And that's exactly what we're reading here at the end of chapter 11. They heard about it, and, and they're told it's great famine is, is coming and came. By the way, it was, it was validated, it was uh, confirmed by Josephus, the historian, who described it happening around A.D. 46. Are you connecting the dots? They're, they're, they're fairly obvious. These young Christians had grown in their new faith. They had been encouraged and they had been taught. And with their eyes on Jesus, we're told twice in this passage, verse 23 and 26, their eyes were on Jesus to respond to this epic need as Jesus would respond in deed and in truth. And you know what happened as a result? The gospel continued to spread to the ends of the earth. 